Welcome to Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer bonus episode. I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas Teg. Hi, I'm Lauren McDermott, and I consider myself to be a lone wolf <laughs> patient advocate for rare disease, and I have what they call atypical SPS, which is stiff person syndrome. Um, Recently, Celine Dion was diagnosed with SPS and they did not announce the type of SPS she has. So I'm not aware of that, but there are several types. Um, I'll just quickly kind of say what they are. I don't need to give further explanation. More information can be found on NIH, uh, National Institutes of Health, and Nord. And so the types of SPS are classical, focal, meaning one limb, jerking, perm. I can't say what that actually is because it's very hard to pronounce. (laughs) And the perioneoplastic related version, uh, which is associated with lung and or breast cancer usually. So I would probably fall under the classical type but in the way that I present. However, I'm considered atypical, which not many people discuss um, because it's the rarer of the rare. So about um, 60 to 70 percent of people with stiff person syndrome, SPS, however you want to refer to it as, have the GAD65 antibody, which is what attacks the GABA in the brain, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that plays a really big role in controlling nerve cell hyperactivity. And it's associated with stress, anxiety, and fear. It affects mood, sleep, and your muscles. So that's kind of the science behind it right now where it stands. It does seem to be changing. They're not exactly sure what causes SPS. So there's that other percentage of people, you know, in that like 30 to 40% that don't have a GAD antibody, and I happen to be one of them. Um, And I also, another test for stiff person syndrome is EMGs, electromyography, and that is testing the agonist and antagonist muscles. And I also was negative on those, and I actually had two of them done. And there's a lot of kind of chatter about whether... EMGs are really effective and if they're done correctly. So who knows if I even had either of the two that I had done correctly. But when I got to the specialist that I'm seeing now, there really was no reason to test me further because with all the presentation and all the other tests that I've had done that came back negative and there being no other possibility of anything else, I basically was diagnosed with stiff person syndrome. Um, I was first misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia and it didn't register with me because my symptoms were very severe. So I pushed a little bit harder um, to get, you know, the diagnosis and some other conditions that SPS can be um, confused with are MS, Parkinson's, primary lateral lateral sclerosis. Sorry, it's hard to say so many things. And hereditary spastic paraphoresis, if I'm saying that correctly. 
uh, fibromyalgia like I was, and also a lot of times mental illness because um, this disease affects mostly women and as most autoimmune diseases do. But SPS is a very high prevalence in women. It used to be called stiff man syndrome. They changed it to stiff person syndrome because that makes more sense because it affects women. So um, oftentimes women are dismissed as being sort of hysterical or just having some sort of mental health issue instead of actually really taking a deep look at what's going on with the body. Um, so that's been a struggle for many people. But um, what also makes it challenging is there's other diseases that carry the GAD antibody. And again, I know I don't have it, um, but like cerebral ataxia, type 1 diabetes, temporal lobe epilepsy, and there's a couple others that have some pretty complicated names that I won't both try to pronounce. But so that's kind of another thing that's a bit intriguing. So you kind of have to rule those things out as well, which obviously all that was ruled out for me. Um, but what makes this so hard is when you're presenting with something severe and all the tests are coming back negative and the rest of your physical health is pretty good. A couple um, autoimmune things from my past that I mentioned, some concussions, but nothing was really registering that really meant anything to them. So we further tested for some other antibodies as well that sometimes can be associated with SPS, such as uh, gephrin, glycine, amphiphysin, and something called DPPX. Again, a very complicated name I won't bother trying to say. Um, and I was negative for all of those as well. And what I find intriguing is I've asked to be retested just out of curiosity and there really doesn't seem to be a point because I've been told that now that I receive IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin, that from the donated blood that you get, that I could have now be presenting antibodies for GAD based on donated blood. I have heard mixed things from different people going to different neurologists that they're not all thinking that's, they're not all on board with that same thought. Um, so there's a little bit of confusion there. And then interestingly enough, um, when the pandemic started, we were, some of us were also told that receiving the IVIG may have given us some COVID antibodies. So a lot of us were told to get the vaccine because we are considered to be immunocompromised because it's a neurological and autoimmune disease. So neuroautoimmune is what they call it. So to be safe, that's what most of us did do. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people still got COVID that I know that have SPS that were vaccinated and receive IVIG. So I don't know how much truth there was or if there was any extra protection in there. Because again, neurologists seem to say different things to patients about that. But that was kind of intriguing. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much, I think, covering the atypical SPS. And I feel like what people need to know is if you think that you identify with this disease, do not think that you need to have certain antibodies and or positive EMGs in order to be diagnosed with this. And to keep pushing, if you feel like the diagnoses that you're getting don't register with you and or the treatments you're getting for those diagnoses, if they aren't helping you improve, keep pushing further to see if maybe this is what you actually have. Thanks, Lauren. That's that's 
I always say that's really interesting. It's one of those things where, <laughs> you know, when, when we talk about this, it's like, oh, that's fascinating. It, it feels like we say it too much sometimes. But so many things kind of go off in my head just really quickly hearing what you're saying about the antibodies. And when you mentioned glycine, um, I believe, I want to say the glycine is also part of another ultra rare condition, um, which is now escaping me because the brain does not work. But um, we had a guest on named Sean Gordon who has an adult onset. Do you know Sean? You, I was like, everybody knows Sean. So if you're nodding because you know Sean, I was like, everybody knows Sean. <laughs> so shout out to Sean. Um, but in any case, glycine is is really part of the the story in his condition as well. And it's very interesting how glycine is, I'm assuming, affecting the muscles in patients if there is that possible connection between SPS and glycine. Um, and also, you mentioned the GAD antibodies. Those are also uh, tested for in autoimmune encephalopathies as well. So it's really interesting how some of these same antibodies or same sort of biological components can present in very different ways. So in stiff person syndrome or in a type of encephalitis or swelling of the brain. That was just kind of like my nerdy takeaway, you know, for a moment there. In part of that is just how much conditions can overlap in our communities or how much diagnostic information can kind of overlap. And I, I, in your experience, did some of that make it any harder for your clinician to kind of say, um, you know, you don't have the antibody and you had the negative EMG, but, you know, the symptoms, you know, also can kind of overlap. So kind of what else was in the differential diagnosis? You probably might have mentioned it, but if we could talk about that again. Um, Presentation-wise, it was just extreme uh, stiffness. I presented also, oddly, more in the upper body to begin with, which again is rare. Usually it starts in the lower limbs for people, especially the legs. So I started in kind of the shoulder, girdle, chest area, if you will, and neck, and then it eventually moved into my entire body um, but weirdly, it's usually kind of like my left upper body that's affected, but then my right leg. So, <laughs> but any any muscle in the body, which there's roughly 600 or so, I believe, can be affected. I've heard of people having eyebrow spasms. I've had a throat spasm, pelvic spasm, you know, all the upper body spasms, a leg spasm. Uh, the other day, I had a really weird spasm behind my ear that <laughs> felt like someone sucker punched me in the head. So there is just a gamut of things that can kind of go on. And then you just wake up with these really weird feelings and sensations. And it, it kind of takes a little while to put together. Oh, right. This is SPS now just affecting this part of my body today, whereas yesterday it was affecting a completely different part of my body. So it likes to jump all around. Um, but, yeah, it was, it's uh, I believe it's called hyperlordosis, where you have a really curved lower back. So I had some of that, but it wasn't too bad yet. I do believe it's gotten worse. And my gait was off. Uh, my balance wasn't great. And extreme, just chronic pain, extreme fatigue. The only thing that was helping was heat. So I was basically at that point um, when I got to good clinicians, I was stuck on a couch all day on a heating pad on my back, just crying most of the day. That was every day. Um, but I did get lucky in the sense, and it's, again, another rare situation, 
that um, I had a coworker who happened to sit me down and notice that at the time when I was working, right before things went really downhill, and I couldn't turn my neck in meetings, I was slurring my speech, I was leaving meetings crying, you know, calling out, working from home, just trying to manage my workload and still get the job done while trying to figure out what the heck was going on and the symptoms were just getting worse. So we had a really nice candid conversation and I explained all my symptoms and despite doing all my own research for six plus months and also going to a ton of doctors and doing a ton of tests during that time, Again, like I said, everything coming back clear, healthy. Um, I, you know, there's many muscle spasm conditions. So you could go on for days and days and days and days and days if you could dedicate your time to it and still like have more to research. So he stumbled upon stiff person syndrome, which I never had. And he told me about it and I completely registered with it. And luckily, I got that information right before I went for an emergency walk in the day before my scheduled appointment with a clinician that I was waiting to get into. And I said to them, I think I have this. And I got laughed at. And they weren't going to test me for the antibody, but they did. And like I said, it came back negative. But in the meantime, I started seeing a bunch of other clinicians, rheumatologists, neurologists, because I started with an internist who really kind of got me into everybody that I needed to see. And very quickly, I mean, this all kind of happened within a week or two. And they basically said, we think you're right. You're like at that point, you know, no one else was laughing anymore. They were all scratching their heads thinking, what the heck is going on here? I think we do have a zebra in front of us because <laughs> in the rare disease community, we identify as a zebra. So, um, so yeah, I was lucky to have that little heads up. Whereas I think if I didn't, who knows, I could still be trying to figure out what I have to this day, believe it or not. What's interesting about talking to folks is that how often we hear very similar circumstances where folks say, um, I, I was at the hospital and it just so happened that there was a specialist there that day who was familiar with this very rare condition. So we had a father on um, early on in, in our first few episodes named Lee Reavy, and his son had an undiagnosed condition. And it was just that moment of chance that the two specialists happened to be familiar with NCBRS. And it's it seems like every time I talk to someone, there is a chance circumstance or a chance meeting that actually leads us to a diagnosis. Like with mine, it was uh, a general practitioner who just happened to notice that I was hypermobile. And when she was kind of like, hmm, okay. And I was like, well, you think that's cool? Watch this, you know? And so it was kind of like, right, you are definitely hypermobile. And then that led to the process. So part of me thinks about how in the U.S. we, what is the average? Is it four years in the U.S. to diagnosis or is it seven? Uh, they roughly like five to seven years for most rare diseases. Okay. kind of the latest I've seen. Yeah, I always get confused, obviously, living in the U.S. and the U.K., you know, in my lifetime, one is four and one is seven. And I, maybe we're four in the U.K. Um, but just that kind of within a decade some people are very lucky. And um, yeah, I've talked to some folks who have come to their diagnosis in like the first six months of symptoms. And at that point, you know, you want to throw a party because it is so difficult to get there. And then some folks, you know, have to see specialist after specialist for like years, you know, I mean, I can't remember what the average number of specialists, what the number is, but I want to say it's something like you see 30, at least 30 clinicians of various specialties within your journey. And that's a lot. Um, 
one thing that you mentioned was the psychiatric component that they sort of had or that they do have in the differential for many patients, and especially as women, that's something that is almost always on the board, you know, sort of for picturing House doing his uh, sketch out of the differential diagnoses. Uh, somatoform conversion is quite often thrown in there. You know, the the thought that, or the the concept that we are going through something mentally and emotionally and unintentionally manifesting these symptoms. And it's what's weird about that is that um, neurologists are not trained psychiatrists. And yet, quite often, they feel very comfortable putting things like that in our notes to say, uh, you know, patient this age, female, believed to be somatoform or, you know, she's, she's manifesting these symptoms because of hypochondria or whatever. They feel they seem like they feel very comfortable making a psychiatric diagnosis for something that is so complex and just really does require the attention. So, you know, it, it, again, like I say, when you talk to more people, some of these these themes come up again, the chance meetings and the the mental health implications, people saying, well, you know, maybe this is something the patient's manifesting. So did with that, did they sort of say, even though you don't have the, the antibody or the EMG response, you know, we also don't feel like there's a, a mental component here. We don't feel that this is something you're manifesting because of the severity of the symptoms or what was sort of the theory there? And do they recommend any sort of like cognitive therapy just to deal with the aftermath of a rare diagnosis? Um, for me, I the state that I presented in physically and how much pain I was in and how hard it was for me to communicate and just how rounded my shoulders were and, you know, literally coming into the doctor's office with a heating pad and just, you know, struggling very hard. I barely able to get up on the exam table, you know, needing help with everything, barely able to take off my clothes, put them on and all that. They're really, I don't think they thought that if this could be any kind of mental health issue just because of how bad it had gotten. Um, and just to kind of touch on what you were saying, I do think I had um, symptoms starting back in like 2012. I was diagnosed in late in uh, August of 2019 but they were all manageable. So unfortunately, you know, I ignored some stuff that maybe if I had taken a little more seriously ahead of the game, I could have gotten diagnosed even earlier. But then again, I wouldn't have presented in that crisis mode. So that's when I feel like I probably wouldn't have been taken seriously and thought of maybe it was some sort of mental health issue instead. But by the time I got to them, it was just such dire straits that there was no denying what was going on. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second question there? Good question, because I've already forgotten my question. That's that's like the lovely reality of, you know, rare and chronic illness is you're like, you say a thing and you and then you're listening to, to someone and you're like, that's great. I wish I could remember what the other thing I asked was. But um, yeah, we were, we were talking about sort of the psyche. Oh, yeah. If, did they suggest because I, you know, neurologists that I've seen in the past have suggested and even endocrinologists have suggested cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapy modalities for just dealing with the overwhelming changes. So, I mean, it is very difficult to see your entire body change and your entire life change. And so I've had a few suggestions and I did finally take the suggestion. I do see a therapist, but 
um, it was really hard for me to make that leap because it felt like they're saying this is all in your head because that's what I heard for many years. You know, this is this is something of your own design. This is something that you're manifesting. You know, you don't really there's nothing really wrong. Despite clinical evidence, there's nothing wrong. And so I do find that it, it's been kind of helpful to have someone to talk to because, you know, they can kind of listen and, and offer coping strategies, whereas maybe family members don't. Have you um was therapy suggested to you as, as a way of dealing with the, the diagnosis and the information that you're having to take on board and the life changes? Um, initially, there really wasn't much talk about it, I think, because we were in such emergency mode of let's figure out what this is. Let's start her on some medication, see if she responds. Then getting a second opinion from the specialist I see now. And I kind of just went into that sort of mode. So my mental health was kind of put on the back burner. And I think I was still sort of in a state of shock, to be honest. I mean, it hit me the day that I got the phone call and they said, this is we do think this is what you have before getting the official second opinion. But obviously, that was a really tough day. And I remember embracing my mom and us both just crying, saying, you know, I don't want to have this. And her saying, I don't want you to have this. So what are we going to do? And what's this going to look like? And basically was um, filled out disability paperwork immediately. Um, And it was kind of said to me, you know, there's no cure. The treatments are rough and we'll try to get you as comfortable as possible. And it wasn't till a couple of first months past past diagnosis that my mental health did start to take a dip um, and since then has continued to decline. So I was uh, referred to a therapist. I tried to find a specific therapist that was familiar with chronic pain and chronic illness. To be honest, I really didn't connect with her. Then I did speak with a grief counselor because that's, to me, it's, I'm grieving my old life. I'm grieving the things that I can no longer do. And with SPS, it is a continuous grieving process, which makes it hard because you you kind of wrap your head around, all right, now I can't lift my arms anymore to this height. Or, you know, today I can't do this. And that's usually pretty typical But then, you know, as time goes on, you continue to lose mobility, continue to get more confused, more brain fog, more fatigue. The meds aren't working as great. And yeah, it's just dealing with this over and over day after day. It just really starts to to bear down on your brain um, and your mental health. So I did finally find a therapist that I'm seeing now that I really like. And it has been helpful um, for me, to be honest, the most helpful is my support group. I have an SPS support group. We used to do calls biweekly. Now it's once a month. But we also have a group text that we do on the side. Um, it's about eight or 10 ladies that I speak to on a regular basis. And we text and we do our own side calls on Zoom. And they have become my second family. And they're like my sisters. You know, I don't have any sisters. I just have a brother. <laughs> um So and they totally get it. And to me, that is paramount because I have a very supportive family, supportive friends, supportive husband. You know, I have a great support network. Again, the therapist is great, but the SPS patients know exactly what we are, you know, what I'm going through. And we can we can get out all the bad stuff. We can celebrate the good stuff together and you know, we don't have to apologize for certain things and not feel guilty with each other. We might not, re- you know, someone might not respond to a group text for a week and we know, hey, you know what, we'll just check in with them in a couple days and see if everything's all right. Make sure nothing bad happened. 
Um, but, you know, they're probably just going through a really rough week and they need that space and they just can't look at their phone and they can't respond. And and that happens quite often with a lot of us because we just have these moments where maybe we don't want to drag down the group or we just don't have the energy to even text the group and relay what's going on in our week. Um, so that has been honestly the most helpful and just connecting with the rare disease community on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. So for me, LinkedIn, I had no idea had such a huge support system for the rare disease community and the disability community, um, which I am a part of the disability community. Still, I do not work and they have been so supportive and so wonderful. And I have learned so much about rare disease and disability accessibility, inclusion that I was never a part of that has totally opened my eyes to a whole new world um, that was always existing that I just, you know, as an able-bodied person didn't really know about because I wasn't exposed to it. So that that to me has been, that's been my rock. So that's the kind of therapy I need. And then I also do obviously physical activity, meditation, reading, and mindfulness kind of things. And to me, what has been extremely beneficial is my Epsom salt sensory deprivation floats that I do for 90 minutes uh, once a week. Would love to get there more often, but it's a little challenging. Uh, I get time to just be in the dark, no noise, you know, no people, no phone. And I might cry for 90 minutes, or I might just be whirling with thoughts and things I want to do and different ideas for articles to try to write or, oh, I got to have a conversation with this person about that. And that's fine. I let that whirl. And then other days I'm just at peace and I have my marijuana edible and I just float and relax. So, but either way I get out of there feeling a lot lighter, feeling a lot more relaxed. And I usually have a pretty good day after I get out of that. So it's just nice to have that sort of almost 24 hour period where you feel a little bit more at peace. That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh, that sounds really good. Um, so to kind of wrap things up, circling back to LinkedIn uh, before we go today, um, are you happy to share a way to connect with you on LinkedIn? Or would no, you absolutely. Uh, so Laura McDermott, I'm okay. right on LinkedIn and I have everything up about my rare disease. I'm pretty easy to find if you search the person syndrome. I'm sure you'll find me. Um, and that's kind of where I'm going to be posting some stuff for Rare Disease Day, which is coming up on February 28th. Um, I'm going to be getting together with my girlfriends for brunch, and we are just going to do kind of just a small, easy photo shoot and try to get some pictures up and get some content up. Um, again, I don't really do any advocacy work directly for a foundation or anything like that because there is a Stiff Person Research Foundation. I'd like to highlight that ran by Tara Zier, and a lot of people are doing Facebook fundraisers for the foundation, especially leading up to Rare Disease Day. But to me, it's kind of a buildup before the day. I'm doing this podcast. Obviously, I was recently on another podcast. I've been trying to get a lot of articles out since the Celine Dion news broke, things that I was working on prior to that, that now, you know, the attention is here and the momentum is here. So I'm kind of riding on that wave. Um, I know Bio News wanted people to submit why they care about rare, saying why rare is the hashtag. Uh, Cure Rare Disease has asked people to share their stories, as well as Nord, 
And also the SPSRF, if you have stiff person syndrome, you can go into the website and there is a section that you can submit your story and a picture and so forth. So I've slowly been kind of working on all those things over the past two to three months, just kind of getting all that stuff together. So, but it's an important day because it's kind of where we all come together and kind of feel proud and a lot of pride and camaraderie and you know that we're all we're all kind of in this together and although everybody's different and has different struggles different conditions and even within a condition there are so many variants and different symptoms and treatments you know we all generally are kind of going through similar struggles to a degree that we can relate to each other so I, this day is very important to me and to my family so I'm looking forward to celebrating, I guess, is the best way you can say. I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> Not that I'm excited I have SPS, but it's here. <laughs> I was going to say, in a, in another lifetime, I think most of us would have thought, like, celebrate rare disease. But you know what? It's been transformative. It's changed a lot of our lives in painful ways, but also in really passionate, powerful, amazing ways. And it's given some of us a new purpose in life or allowed us the space to pursue things that we wanted to pursue, but just didn't have the time because we were doing the rising grind and just never got that chance to do what we wanted to do. So it's a mixed blessing sometimes. I like to quote Spider-Man and say, it is my gift. It is my curse. Because, you know, Spider-Man was right on top of that one. Super. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing with us atypical SPS and as well as what you're doing for Rare Disease Day. All great information. And I will put links in the show notes for more information and how to find you on LinkedIn. And for folks who may also have SPS, please, you know, consider reaching out to Lauren and, and having a chat. But uh, that wraps us up for today. So thank you again for, for joining me. And uh, we'll see you all soon. I hope you enjoyed this mini episode of Signalize a Dazzle for a podcast. If you enjoyed this bonus or our longer form episodes, please share them with a family member, friend, or a colleague. Sharing Signalize helps to spread rare disease awareness, good news, and patient stories so that more people can hear them. Hearing is believing, and I believe that our stories are uplifting and life-changing. Once you share Signalize, remember to click subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you just can't get enough, just can't get enough of Signalize, subscribe to our social media at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four rare, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest, where you can stay informed on the podcast and upcoming patient projects that help to increase rare and associated community voices. 